You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. Hey City Tribe, I'm thrilled you've tuned in today for the 13th and final teaching in our series, Better Recognize. For the last 12 weeks, we've been obedient to a sense that God wanted our tribe to know Him more intimately. So we've journeyed through the Gospel of John, an eyewitness account about Jesus, God revealed in human form, in order to better recognize His personality, His preferences, and His perspective. Now, if you have been with us, listened to, and watched the entirety of this entire series, every message in it. Right now, I want you to drop a raised hand emoji or drop us a comment in the chat to let us know we want to celebrate your commitment to this journey. Now, today we'll unpack an event that John felt was the perfect portrayal of Jesus with which to punctuate his account. It was John's last effort to paint a picture of and to persuade you and me just how amazing Jesus is. And remember, John wanted badly for you and for me to recognize who Jesus is because he believed in Jesus was life. And he wanted us to experience the fullness of life that he personally experienced. So my hope is for everyone watching and listening, no matter when you're watching or listening, my hope is that you'll be so amazed today by what John recorded your whole outlook on life will be supercharged with hope for your future and that you will be made alive like you've never experienced before. Now, there is just one problem that could keep you and me from being amazed by what John recorded. And that problem is this. We won't appreciate how amazing Jesus is if we don't recognize how scandalous Jesus was. We won't appreciate how amazing Jesus is if we don't recognize how scandalous Jesus was. Author Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, put our potential problem this way. To live in a Western country like the United States is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. It does not require a belief that Jesus rose from the dead to be stamped by the formidable, indeed inescapable influence of Christianity. Most of us are, get this, dulled to just how scandalous Jesus originally was. You see, most of us, when we read or hear the scriptures today, we generally process them with the very values and attitudes and expectations that they ultimately produced in our world. So it's easy for you and it's easy for me to be unmoved by how outrageous the events recorded in the scriptures actually were. For example, around 90 AD, when John's account began to circulate the ancient world, his concluding section that we're exploring today, it would have been really hard for many people to appreciate and to accept as is. What John recorded was so countercultural for his day, it would have incited internal disputes among many faith communities. Some individuals may have altogether turned away from their faith 
in Jesus. Reading or hearing what's in this section, some folks in the first century would have cried out, this teaching is irresponsible. This teaching is negligent. This is scandalous. And so, to recognize how scandalous Jesus was, in order to appreciate how amazing he is, that you might be made alive, here's what I want you to do with me. Let's, together, for the next few minutes, pretend to set aside our modern-day values of decency and dignity for all people, and let's assume a mindset that viewed public shame as the ultimate proof of one's worthlessness. So let's set aside our values of this world today, and then let's take on a first-century mindset that viewed public shame as the ultimate proof that someone was worthless. And with that, let's pray and we'll begin. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as we unpack John's concluding section today, we pray that you would open our eyes to just how scandalous the events recorded actually were. We pray that you would testify, give us evidence for exactly who you are, that we might be changed and made alive. Speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what did John record that was so scandalous? People in the first century would have been outraged. What did Jesus do that was so reprehensible that people in ancient times had a hard time accepting it and appreciating it. Well, to recognize how scandalous John's concluding event is, it helps to reconstruct all that had gone down leading up to it. Here's what had gone down. Jesus' disciples had experienced several significant changes within just a matter of days. They discovered their trusted friend, someone they considered an advisor, Judas, that he had betrayed Jesus, the one person who made them feel like they mattered, the person who gave them purpose. Then, as a result of Judas's betrayal, an innocent Jesus was arrested, brutally beaten, crucified, and buried. Knowing what crucifixion entailed, they'd have been traumatized at the evils their teacher was subjected to. We know they were grieved because John wrote this about the disciple Mary. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And even if, even if they were angry with Judas in that moment, he was still someone that they had intimately known and he was a traveling companion. So not only would the disciples have grieved Jesus's execution, they'd have been devastated to learn that an overwhelmed with guilt Judas, their one-time friend, had died by suicide. As Jesus' known associates, they were also at risk of being arrested. So their freedom was threatened. And adding to all of their stress, they were still in the major city, Jerusalem, roughly 100 miles away from home. And there's no place like home. So the disciples had to have anxiously wondered if they'd ever make it out of Jerusalem alive. We know they felt afraid because John wrote, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. On top of all of that, 
without the face of the kingdom movement, Jesus, people would no longer financially support their traveling tribe. So the disciples were out of work and thus out of an income. And they likely felt they no longer had purpose. In shock, infuriated, traumatized, grieved, afraid, anxious, broken, seemingly purposeless. Surely Jesus' disciples didn't eat or sleep well in the midst of all this traumatic life change. And if they slept at all, I'd wager that it was because they cried themselves to sleep. And then I'd wager that night terrors woke them up in a frantic panic. And if all of that change wasn't shocking enough, after three days, to their surprise, and of course they were surprised because no one comes back from crucifixion and burial, Jesus appeared to them saying, peace be with you. As if everything was all good, like surprise, I done told you it was going to happen and you still didn't see it coming. Talk about a psychological roller coaster ride. All of this change would have been overwhelming for any adult to process in such a short period of time. Now imagine young men, younger than even our youth pastor, Robbie Quintero. Imagine them having to navigate these experiences. Remember, Jesus' disciples were in their late teens and in their early 20s. And so these young fellas, they had to have had a hard time processing all of it. They had to have been all sorts of mentally and emotionally messed up, right? Well, then perhaps the disciple most severely mentally and emotionally messed up by all of this was Simon Peter. Here's what I mean. So you might recall from week eight in this series, the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter was appalled that his fellow disciples allowed their teacher to perform slaves labor and wash their feet. Peter, however, was too honoring to permit it. So he shouted at Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And just moments after that, when Jesus said to his disciples, he was leaving them. Peter boldly distinguished himself from them other cowards. And he said to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. Peter made declarations like these that painted him as Jesus's greatest disciple for three and a half years. But that very evening, despite all his cocky claims, Peter discovered he was no greater than the others. And actually, Peter soon discovered he was much like Judas, who, when he led soldiers and officials to arrest Jesus, was also, now I want you to say this next phrase with me if you're watching online, if you're listening, pay close attention. He was also what? Standing with them. He was standing with them. I want you to remember that. Now here's what happened. Jesus was arrested and taken to the high priest's courtyard and both Peter and John followed. Well, in the courtyard, a servant girl asked Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And what's so fascinating about Peter's response, it's not just what he said. It's that he felt the need to respond at all. In March 2020, 
in a teaching titled, Hey Girl. I taught in greater detail about how women were viewed prior to Jesus's teaching and modeling. You might remember in the first century, women weren't valued then like they are today. According to Jewish law at that time, women weren't permitted to testify in court. Their credibility was considered equal to that of a slave or a lunatic or a child. In other words, women in that day weren't considered credible or competent. It was thus seen as undignified for Jewish men, especially married men like Peter, to speak in public to a woman. So, in his right mind, Peter would have felt unfazed by this servant girl's question. The fact that he even responded when reading or hearing his response, it should make you go and it should make me go, whoa, that's a big deal. And how Peter responded is an even bigger deal. Here's how Peter, who just moments prior declared to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. Here's how Peter answered the servant girl whose word in that day wouldn't even have weight. When asked if he was Jesus's disciple, Peter decidedly declared to her, I am not. Have you ever told a little white lie like, I'm on my way, when you haven't even started getting ready? And maybe because you already lied, you decided, I just got to keep going with it. And so you said that I'm five minutes away when you haven't even left. And then immediately you felt guilty, right? If you're anything like me, you probably felt guilty. Well, even worse, have you ever, in front of folks who know the truth, lied to someone, and then your friends or your family look at you with pursed lips like, this guy, can't believe him. I don't know about you, but when I've lied like that, I felt ashamed and I felt awkward around others. I've wanted to put like a paper bag over my head afterwards. Well, when Peter lied to this servant girl, just a few feet away from him were his friends, John and Jesus. And John obviously heard the lie because he recorded it in his account. And so, you know, Peter's face was flush with shame. I imagine he felt like such a jerk and a complete phony. In fact, Peter put on the performance of a lifetime, pretending to be an ally of the very people who wanted Jesus dead. While Jesus was being unfairly tried by officials and while he was being slapped by the soldiers, Peter froze in fear. John wrote, the servants and the officials had made a, now say this next phrase with me, made a what? Charcoal fire. Remember that. Because it was cold. And they were standing there warming themselves. And Peter was, just as Judas did, standing with them, warming himself. What's also important for you and for me to recognize about this moment is in Jewish culture, if you wanted to emphasize a point you repeated it three times. For example, the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, they don't describe God as just holy. Some of you may have heard this before. He's what? Holy, holy, holy. God is three times holy. God is emphatically holy. 
Well, what happened next is another reason that Peter would have been severely mentally and emotionally messed up. As he stood allied with the people who wanted Jesus dead, he was again asked, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? To which Peter, a second time, insistently denied, I am not. And a few moments later, another of the servants inquired, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And once again, an emphatic third time, no, no, no. And according to that principle of emphasizing a point, Peter didn't simply deny being associated with Jesus. He basically swore it on his own life or on his mama's grave. And even worse, he did it while standing with Jesus's enemies, just like Jesus's betrayer, Judas. And worst of all, he emphatically declared it in Jesus's very presence. Now, given his epic lies and his blatant disloyalty. If Peter lived in our world today, how do you think his actions might be viewed and how might he be treated? And how do you imagine Peter would have felt about himself? Well, if we're honest, if Peter lived in our world today, he'd probably be canceled. Some faith communities would cast out Peter for his lack of loyalty and because they could no longer trust him. Some Christians might say he never really believed in Jesus. Obviously, what a disgrace. Some would use social media to throw his failure in his face and to destroy his life. His professional reputation would be tarnished and he'd be blackballed in his industry. Colleagues might distance themselves and his organization might fire him. And what's true for how Peter might be viewed in our world and how he might be treated in our world today, it was guaranteed in his day. Remember, Peter lived in a time when people's ultimate currency was their reputation and their honor. If word got out about Peter's blatant lies and his shameful disloyalty, he'd have been the poster boy for disgrace. He'd be socially excommunicated. No one would associate with him and he may as well have been dead. And Peter knew this. He'd have felt disgusted with himself. He would have felt disgraced and disqualified, depressed and better off dead. And so on top of all the trauma and all the shock the disciples experienced from Jesus's death and resurrection, this shame is why Peter would have been severely mentally and emotionally messed up. Hearing this story today, 2,000 years removed, my guess is you're emotionally unimpacted by Peter's actions. But don't forget, we're considering what John recorded from his first century audience perspective. And when John's account began to circulate in 90 AD, some of his readers would have been outraged with Peter. It's this outrage with a traitor, a disloyal traitor, a shameful traitor that makes what John recorded in his concluding section so scandalous. And here is where our conversation today really takes off. So sometime between eight and 40 days after Jesus last appeared, at least seven of Jesus's male disciples returned home to Galilee. John wrote, Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, 
Zebedee's sons, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And once back home, perhaps Peter needed some normalcy and he wanted to clear his mind, or very practically speaking, since Peter had a family and had mouths to feed, he needed income. And so Peter said, I'm going fishing. And that given that he was visibly distraught and given their overwhelmed with guilt, friend Judas had just died by suicide. It's conceivable the other six disciples didn't want Peter to be alone. And so whatever the case, they declared, we're coming with you. Now, these seven disciples were experienced fishermen. It's not like you put me, an inexperienced city dweller, out at sea. No, they knew how to read the sea for where fish would be and where they should cast their heavy nets. In addition to that, a few of them were even business partners. They had great chemistry working together. So what happened for them that night was extremely unusual. John recorded, that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak came, the disciples decided to head home empty-netted and empty stomach. And perhaps their eyes were fatigued from working through the night, perhaps because the sun hadn't fully risen yet, visibility was limited, and perhaps they were still too far from the shore to see clearly, but someone from the shore had called out to them, and they couldn't recognize who this person was. He called out, little children, you don't have any fish, do you? To which they yelled back, no. And what this mystery person on the shore shouted next was, odd and perhaps kind of insulting. He shouted, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now these professional fishermen practiced a calculated science, so they didn't need help from a stranger calling out random instructions from the shore. In addition to that, John detailed that by this point, they were so close to the shore, about a hundred yards away, so the large fish they sought weren't schooling around in the shallow waters. Casting their heavy nets one last time before docking really wouldn't have been worth their energy. Nevertheless, maybe they thought a few small fish are better than no fish. And as the mysterious man on the shore suggested, they cast their net on the right side of the boat. And here's what John remembered about their decision to follow that odd suggestion. He said, they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. And their catch wasn't just large in number. The fish they caught were also large in size. These weren't small, shallow water fish. No, they caught huge, deep water fish. John recorded their net was full of large fish, 153 of them. Now for John, this miraculous provision had an interesting familiarity. It was reminiscent of another miracle the disciples experienced in that very region just a year prior. We unpacked that miraculous provision in week five's teaching titled The Bread of Life. So I won't go into the details, but for John, it's like the light bulb turned on. Aha, there's only one person who could do this. And there's only one person who calls us little children. And so John excitedly declared to Peter, it's the Lord. Now consider this. This is how generous and how gracious and how good of a God Jesus is. This is how amazing he is. Despite his disciples abandoning him as he was being brutalized, 
Jesus still sought them out to serve them. He still provided for them exceedingly and abundantly more than they could have ever caught on their own or imagined. Who among us listening or watching would do that naturally? Admittedly, not me. Like if you betray me or if you abandon me, I'm not naturally going to be inclined to seek you out to serve you. And I certainly won't naturally want to go out of my way to generously provide for you. That little cartoon devil on my shoulder will always whisper to me, Lee, that person, that person doesn't deserve you. And actually, for some of John's first century audience, Jesus' generosity and his graciousness toward his disciples, those shameful defectors, it would have been so foreign that they would have been frustrated. Their idea of justice wasn't enacted. They'd have had a hard time accepting that Jesus didn't withhold from his disciples as a form of punishment. Some would have preferred for an angry Jesus to have unleashed his wrath on them so they learned a hard lesson to never show shameful disloyalty ever again. This is partly why what John recorded in this concluding section was so outrageous and revolutionary. But what Jesus did next for the disciples was considered even more scandalous and more infuriating. You see, when the disciples finally arrived on shore, they all would have been overwhelmed at what awaited them. And for you and for me to fully grasp the emotion of what awaited them on shore, I want you to think about this. Think of those moving movie or television scenes when a character professes their unending love for another after all that they had been through. Like in the iconic movie, Say Anything, when Lloyd holds over his head a boombox playing for Diane the song, In Your Eyes, or in the show, The office, when in a candle-filled room, Michael, after all that they had gone through, finally asked Holly, marrying me, will you be? Or like every climactic scene of every Hallmark Channel movie, because they're all the exact same movie, but I still can't get enough of them. Those scenes are moving because they're so intimate and meaningful. And what awaited the disciples on the shore would have been a lot like those emotionally moving moments. The disciples would have been stunned and speechless. And here's how I know that. In the book, uh, Meal with Jesus, in order to express how scandalous it was for Jesus to socialize with shameful outcasts and with those who collaborated with his enemies, Bible scholar Scott Barchi is quoted saying, eating food with another person, had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. As parties ingested the same foods, they declared, we are now one in the same. We are of the same substance. And so to someone in the first century who was shamed or estranged, 
to be invited to share a meal with someone, that would be their version of the emotionally moving scenes that we just mentioned. And this is exactly the kind of intimate, meaningful moment Jesus created for his disciples. John wrote, when they got out on land, they saw a what? Charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. The disciples had to have stood in disbelief at what Jesus had graciously prepared for them. And so Jesus broke the awkward silence and he invited them. He said, come and have breakfast. Let me make peace with you. Seeing the moment Jesus created and hearing his invitation, the exhausted disciples, the mentally and emotionally distraught disciples, they would have thought he still accepts us. He still thinks we're valuable and worthy. He still wants to be in relationship with us. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus was the one abandoned. He was the one emphatically denied among enemies. Yet still, Jesus generously provided for his disciples and he graciously prepared for them a meal to make peace. He initiated reconciliation and he demonstrated he was still for them, that he would not harm them and he would only do to them and for them what is good. Jesus declared his love and he restored unity with his little children, meaning he never once thought they were a disappointment and he never thought they were a disgrace. His affection for them hadn't changed and wouldn't ever change. And this is the kind of scandalous God John wanted you and me to better recognize Jesus is. And so listen, no matter what you've done and no matter what you will do, Jesus is not disappointed with who you are. Jesus doesn't view you as a disgrace. Just like he demonstrated with his disciples, his affection for you has not and will not change. Like he never stopped adoring the disciples, he still adores you and will forever adore you. He constantly calls out to you and he calls out to me saying, little children, come, let me make peace with you. And so hear me loud and clear when I tell you, it doesn't matter what the people around you think or say. And despite what you might think or say to yourself, from Jesus's God revealed in human forms perspective, you're not a disappointment. You're not a disgrace. You're not undeserving of life. You are Jesus's little child. And simply because of whose you are, you are absolutely deserving of life in its fullest possible quality. Do you receive that? Tell yourself, the person next to you, or type in the comments, you're Jesus's little child. Tell yourself, the person next to you, or type in the comments, you deserve life to the full. Now, if John's first century audience didn't find all of this scandalous enough, if they weren't already disappointed that Jesus didn't dole out punishments instead of generosity and grace, what happened next would be the scandal that dissuaded some from ever following Jesus again. Because what Jesus did, few modern day managers, heck, even some pastors would never even consider. Here's what happened. 
Jesus' charcoal fire would have been a painful reminder of the charcoal fire Peter stood around with his enemies. So after breakfast, in front of the other disciples, Jesus attended specifically to the downtrodden Peter. As he often did, Jesus raised the question he already knew the answer to. He asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these other disciples? To which Peter carefully chose his words so as to not again distinguish himself as better than the others. He responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I imagine Peter feared this is it. This is when Jesus demotes or dismisses me from his kingdom movement. And I imagine some of John's first century audience thought, yes, Jesus, let Peter have it. Bring down the hammer of correction and discipline. Tell him he's disqualified. Don't take it easy on him. So how did Jesus address Peter's epic failure? How did he attend to someone as mentally and emotionally messed up as Peter was? Well, to everyone's surprise, and even my own, Instead of putting Peter in his place and telling Peter everything he had done poorly and everything he needed to correct, and instead of requiring a redemption process or an employee improvement plan, Jesus simply charged Peter to do for others what Jesus had just done for the disciples. Jesus said, feed my lambs. In other words, Peter, not only are you not a disgrace, or a disappointment to me. You're still very much qualified to serve in my kingdom movement and to take my peace to my children throughout the world. Peter had to have wondered, wait, what? Is Jesus serious or is he just messing with my head? And then a second time, Jesus insistently inquired, do you love me? To which Peter again responded, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And shepherd my sheep care for my little children. And then, y'all remember that principle of emphasis, right? Jesus asked Peter a third time, do you love me? And hearing Jesus ask three times, I bet Peter's three emphatic denials of him echoed in his mind. And surely Jesus needing to ask three times signified to Peter that Jesus no longer trusted his word. And so Peter's guilt and his remorse and his feelings of worthlessness, every emotion he carried, it came to head. And what John recorded next suggests that Peter sobbed uncontrollably as he spoke. He wrote that Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time. And so Peter said, Lord, you know everything. Jesus is pretty obvious. It's why I've been visibly distraught since I denied you. And then Peter continued, you know that I love you. Jesus, I'm sure you've peered into my soul. You are already aware that I have a dear and deep affection for you. Whether or not it dawned on Peter, it surely dawned on John. It's why he captured it in his concluding section. Jesus asked Peter three times for emphasis, not because he didn't trust him anymore, but because Jesus is just that generous and gracious and good. Jesus gently and graciously created for Peter the opportunity for redemption. Without Peter realizing it, he had just 
in Jesus' very presence and in front of his fellow disciples, he had just three times declared his affection for Jesus, thus negating his three denials. He emphatically swore on his mama's grave and on his own life that he loved Jesus. And John, John was gracious to ensure that the last picture his words painted of his friend Peter weren't his denials, but Peter's emphasis and his emphatic declarations that he loved Jesus. That's a heck of a friend. Am I right? Hashtag friendship goals right there. But perhaps even more significant than Peter's emphatic profession of his affection for Jesus was Jesus's emphatic declaration that despite Peter's failures, he wasn't disqualified. He wasn't done. So a third and emphatic time, a gracious and generous Jesus, God himself in human form, charged Peter, feed my sheep. Though the world wants to control and correct and condemn or cancel when you failed. Though the world wants to put you in timeout or take you out altogether. Jesus says to those whose hearts are with him, you're not disqualified, you're not done. And he gently and he graciously puts you back to work in his kingdom movement. And actually earlier this week, our lead pastor, Doug Robbins, reminded me that this scandalous grace is what we practice, what we preserve, and what we promote here at City Tribe. And in fact, here was the extent of Jesus's restoration plan for Peter. He told him, and he tells you, and he tells me, follow me. That's it. Follow me. Now I have to wonder, could it be that simple? Just follow Jesus? Like, isn't such scandalous grace negligent and irresponsible of Jesus? Doesn't it just enable? Could it even be effective at changing lives? Well, Peter, who 2,000 years later is no longer viewed as a disgrace or a shameful disloyalist, Peter, who is now seen as a pillar of the kingdom movement and revered as a saint and the first pope, Peter, who wrote, set your hope completely on the grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. I'm certain he would advocate that Jesus' scandalous grace is completely effective at changing lives. And then John, who in his old age deemed this particular conversation the perfect way to conclude his account who punctuated his experiences with the closing words, we know that his testimony is true. John, who believed that in Jesus is life, John would say, I wouldn't have recorded it if scandalous grace didn't truly produce life to the full. And Jesus, who was willingly crucified as the payment required for my sins and your sins, that we might be made alive by his indwelling spirit. Jesus, whose death, resurrection and ascension transformed the world's values and expectations overnight, which gave birth to hospitals and orphanages and universities and human rights and the modern world as we know it. Jesus would say, my scandalous grace has already proven effective. It's more than sufficient to change lives. And as someone who in college wrote a paper mocking how foolish Christianity is, 
but who now can't stop sharing the peace and the joy and the hope brought about by intimately knowing Jesus. I tell you that deciding to follow Jesus is the least negligent and most life-giving decision I've ever made. And so I beg you, hear me out. If you dropped out of high school or you flunked out of college and you feel like an utter failure, if you've got a criminal record that's kept you from gainful employment, you're not disqualified. You're not done. Follow Jesus and he will give you purpose and put you on a promising path. If your moral mess up in your marriage has left you and your children miserable, you're not disqualified. You're not done. Follow Jesus and he will make meaning out of that mess. He can bring healing and wholeness to your broken family. If you've developed destructive dependencies and they're taking you down, you're not disqualified. You're not done. Follow Jesus. He will help you fight your battles. He will help you find freedom as you feed his sheep. And if you were shamed for conceiving a child young or outside of marriage, if you're tormented by your decision to get an abortion, if you're depressed and you feel you've got nothing left to live for, you're not disqualified. You're not done. Follow Jesus and experience the gentleness, the generosity, and the grace he will give you as his adored little child to everyone watching or listening. Let Jesus do for you what he did for Peter and the disciples, what he's done for me and this world. I emphatically implore you, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. You would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life That I would be set free Oh, Jesus, I sing for All that you done for me Who breaks the power Of sin and darkness Whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life that I would be set free Jesus I sing for all that you've done for me 
done for me Oh, that you done for me, Lord So I see now you worthy Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy is the King who conquered the grave Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Worthy, worthy, worthy Oh, this is amazing grace This is unfailing love pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your scandalous grace. My prayer is that everyone watching or listening, that they would have a real tangible experience with that scandalous grace. I pray that they would know just how scandalous you were so that they could be amazed by who you really are. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope you recognize how scandalous Jesus was so you can appreciate how amazing Jesus is. And if this teaching or if this series on Jesus has impacted you in any way, are you opposed to letting us know? Send us a message to any of our social media accounts, letting us know how better recognizing Jesus has impacted your life. And hey, while you're there, be sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram or subscribe to our YouTube channel so that we're able to stay connected as a tribe. And if you were impacted, be sure to share this or any of the City Tribe teachings with someone who you know could also use some encouragement, whether you share the link or share the message in your own words. Now, every week we challenge you to follow Jesus by practicing generosity. And let me say, first of all, thank you. Thank you to everyone who's given even a penny to sustain this tribe during a pandemic when everyone is already stressed and strapped. We haven't lost sight of that. And I want you to know the miracle that is God's provision through your generosity 
It doesn't ever slip my mind. So again, thank you. And secondly, Jesus himself said, you and I weren't made for the purpose of religious practices like giving, but religious practices like giving first to his kingdom movement were made for the purpose of serving us. So whether or not I worked at City Tribe, my wife Christine and I, we would still give away the first 10% of our income. And I encourage you to follow Jesus by trusting he will bless you for putting first his kingdom movement. And in the area of your finances, I invite you to give first here at City Tribe, where you know your gift is appreciated and faithfully stewarded to help people experience Jesus's scandalous grace. You can give online at citytribe.church tithe. You can mail in your offering or even text to give. And with that, Brothers and sisters, if you're able to, wherever you are, go ahead and stand and hold out your hands as if you are receiving this verbal blessing. Brothers and sisters, may you, each and every day of your life, seek to better recognize how scandalous Jesus was so you appreciate how amazing Jesus truly is. May you remember he is the God of joy who is consumed with you. May he sustain and satisfy you as you allow him to care for you, to wash your feet. May he bless you as you deliberately deny yourself and prioritize others. May you keep clear that he is near so you don't fear. And may you always have at the forefront of your mind this truth. Only in Jesus is life. Amen. God bless you guys. We're glad you're a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.